Welcome back to the More Pigs podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking with us. Listen in to find out who Anastasia, Boyer, Georgios, and me, Will, are, and how we got into molecular programming and our views on the field. Boya Wang is currently a postdoctoral scholar at the University of Texas at Austin, working with David Soloveitchik. She explores and engineers molecular systems that are able to robustly execute molecular algorithms. She is also trying to integrate DNA computing with DNA storage. She received her PhD in BioECE from the University of Texas at Austin in 2020. She obtained her BSc in chemistry from Huashong University of Science and Technology in China. Hello, I'm Boya. I'm going to introduce Anastasia. Anastasia Ashover is a PhD student in William Shee's lab at Harvard, working on novel strategies for ultra-cooperative self-assembly of DNA to reliably build microscale structures with nanoscale features for algorithmic assembly, nanofabrication, and diagnostics. She obtained her bachelor's degree in natural sciences at the University of Cambridge with a background in pharmacology, material sciences, and data science. Hello, I'm Anastasia. Uh, Georges Hardo is a systems and synthetic biology PhD student at the University of Cambridge Engineering Department, supervised by Samanath Bakshi. His work is mainly focused on antibiotic tolerance, aging, and persistence in bacteria, specifically E. coli and B. subtilis, which he studies using a combination of experiments, mathematical modeling, and simulation. Additionally, he's interested in image analysis for high throughput microscopy. He earned a, a Bachelor's of Engineering in Chemical Engineering from the University of Sheffield, and an MPhil in Biotechnology from the University of Cambridge. Hi, thanks for introducing me, Anastasia. And finally, uh, I'm going to introduce Will. Um, Will Early recently earned their PhD in the Physics of Unconventional Computing at the University of Cambridge, supervised by Goss Micklem. Their work focused on finding the theoretical limits of computational performance in our universe and how to go about realising these in molecular computers. Additionally, they developed a programming language for reversible molecular computing, and they hope to implement these ideas in real molecular computers in the future. And I will. So this episode is a bit of a weird one. Um, so unlike in our previous episodes, we don't have a guest this time. It's just us. And so we're going to be... It's kind of an experiment. We're going to be reading out some different questions and trying to find out what our opinions are on this, and hopefully you'll find it interesting. So to start with, um, you might have noticed from our bios that two of us are based in the UK, two are based in the US currently, and Anastasia, you were in the UK and now are in the US. So I think it'd be interesting to compare the differences between grad schools in different countries. So we're probably going to mostly have experience with the UK and US, so it will be a bit localised, but hopefully that gives at least a bit of an impression. Um, so, Anastasia, how did you find the difference between the two institutions? So I feel that the difference between UK and US educational systems actually starts earlier than grad school. So even in undergrad, you might notice that in the UK, you tend to only focus on studies within uh, what you're degree is or your major is if you're in the US and you don't really do much of anything else. So if you're 
studying, uh, say, bioengineering, like all three years of your undergraduate, you'll just be doing bioengineering. In the US, like, you'll probably also be doing like other subjects like humanities and uh, anything else. Like for, It depends on the university, but pretty much across the board, you will be studying a lot of different things as well. And then uh, for a PhD as well, um, in the US, you might notice that they tend to be longer. So six years is normal. In the UK, it's more like three to four years. Um, and you also take a lot of courses. And you, sometimes like these, these tend to be relevant to the degree you're studying. So if you're, again, in the example bioengineering, like they'll mostly be bioengineering relevant courses. They strictly don't have to be like you might end up doing other things as well. And it really also depends on the university in terms of what the requirements are. And in the first year of your degree, you might, like depending on the program, it's more common in biological programs than others, uh, also rotate in different labs. So unlike in the UK, where you tend to just commit to one lab from the beginning, from the moment you're actually applying for your PhD, in the US, you have some time at the beginning to explore and choose what you're actually going to work on. And so it's almost as if uh, in the UK, you're expected to like start on your project from day one and be maybe productive from day one and then graduate sooner. Uh, the main difference that, that I see is that in the US, you have more time to like explore and figure things out. And the, there's a bit more emphasis on learning in like, the PhD side. Do you think that is because in uh, the undergrads in the US, because you, yes, you do have a major, but you haven't completely focused on it, you might would it be fair to say, and um, Boya, maybe you can ask this more, I, I don't know, would it be fair to say that there are almost gaps that you need to fill in in grad school because you've had a more rounded education, but then you need to focus in on, on what you're doing, whereas maybe in the UK, because you've just focused entirely on that and not got the extra interesting stuff that like you haven't done any humanities, you kind of may, maybe you're ready to get straight in. I, I I'm actually wondering if you get um education in uk and you don't have um you directly go to your go into your subject but how do you know that's something that you're really interested in and is it possible to change switch major or something yeah that's a good point so it's not impossible and it does happen but i'd say it's not too common yeah it, it's it's rare and difficult and it typically requires you to reset the year right yeah because you'll be out of sync with the rest of the um the other cohorts and also it complicates funding because at least in the uk usually you get funding from you get a student loan from the government um which you will need to pay back but you only get one of those so if you switch that might mean you have to find one year or, or more of funding for yourself so it's a bit complicated but it does happen i knew someone who um they started out doing medicine then they switched to veterinary and then uh, because they'd already taken some of the same courses, they then decided to do some computer science and geography at the same time. So you can make it your own, but it's not. It's definitely not common. Uh, so you do, in some sense, need to know earlier on, I guess, what you want to go into, uh, which is a big decision to make when you're 17, 18. And it also really depends on the university in terms of how easy to, it is to do the switching. But one thing, too, that's kind of interesting is that the specialisation actually begins even earlier than that because at a level so, so like the last two years of school in, in the uk before you start university you're already typically doing only like four or so subjects so you can easily just only be doing science at that point or only humanities unlike the us or like most other countries for that matter where 
all through high school, you're still doing a very broad range of courses. Yeah, and even even earlier. Yeah, so I guess we should give a brief primer on what the UK school system is. So you have primary school, which is um, the equivalent of elementary in the US. So this is um, from age five to about 10, 11. Um, so there is just, you know, use crayons or, or whatever. Um, then you go to secondary school, which is equivalent of high school. Um, so this is ages 11 to 16 and then up to 18 if you then take um higher education um and yeah even at 14 15 you're starting to make some decisions on what your future will be um you're starting to eliminate subjects you can't eliminate everything then but yeah you you do need to start quite early i guess for me it helped that i kind of knew from before i was 10 that i wanted to go into kind of science and and I think I had a vague inkling I wanted, not that I knew at all what molecular programming was back then or that it even existed. I only found out a couple of years before I started my PhD, but I think, I think there were some seeds back then of uh, this interest in kind of shaping matter um, programmatically. So, well, do you think like in a few years from now, there will be 10 year olds who know what molecular programming is? Well, I hope that's a good question, and I hope so because, yeah, at the moment we're a small field. We started in nineteen ninety five, uh, which. Hmm. So I was born in nineteen ninety five. George Ross when ninety six. Actually, wait, maybe this isn't what we want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's older. It's older than some of us. Um, yeah, all of us speaking are around the age of the field, but it's still. It's starting to change, but it's still quite, not insular, but, you know, when you find it, then you find out a lot about molecular programming and this really awesome field. And it's surprisingly well-defined for being such a young field as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a very strong idea of, of what it means. In fact, Jordan, maybe you'd like to define the field. No, I, I can't define it because I have, I have strong opinions about what... Which is uh, why you should be the one defining it. Well, maybe I can start by, maybe it will, what I know it's not is... Not synthetic biology. So I've got this opinion that synthetic biology is within the realm of molecular programming. Um, this is a disagreement that we've had for a long time, because if I recall correctly... I think you're overstating the extent of the disagreement, but I'll let you continue. Well, if I recall correctly, <laughs> I said that if you're... Essentially, you're you're programming you're programming some sort of genetic code, which is, in a sense, manipulating molecules in order to construct, say, circuits out of enzymes, various proteins, uh, and DNA to perform some function. And if I recall correctly, Boyer said, "Well, that is a kind of programming." It's not molecular programming because it's not kind of it's not low level enough. You're not programming the molecules di- You don't manipulate the molecules directly. You interface through DNA, and you get transcription factors and enzymes to manipulate the molecules for you. So I I I, I almost agree. Um, if it weren't that enzymes are just big molecules, um, but I, I kind of so I, I kind of yeah. If it, like I guess the main line definition is the manipulation of molecules 
in a in a very very direct way yeah i think this gets into the root of what most arguments on the internet are about which is that different people have different semantics about very similar things so i think that like as you say there can definitely be an argument that synthetic biology is programming molecules um and maybe some would think it's facetious and i'm not sure where i fall on it but you can argue that even the first people to domesticate crops were some sense of molecular programmer but you know this is all definitions um at the end of the day i think I think it's good to have a strong definition. I mean, I am a descriptivist rather than a prescriptivist in a linguistic sense. So, you know, whatever people end up thinking a word means is fine. But I think what people generally consider the field of molecular programming to be is, I say, this kind of direct manipulation of molecules. It's kind of a bottom-up development of nanotechnology Um you know, we are starting from, okay, we've amassed all this knowledge and understanding of how biochemistry and chemistry and molecules work. How can we use this to create our own systems from scratch, inspired by nature, but different from nature? Whereas synthetic biology, I would say, is it is absolutely still a form of programming matter. And it, you know, it's made of molecules, so... There's definitely a sense in which it's molecular programming, but I think it's more a top-down approach where you're taking an existing system and you're manipulating it by tweaking it and hacking it Mm. and learning how to get around the feedback in the system to make it work. I'm not really qualified to talk about synthetic biology, but that's my understanding. But you could you could potentially use the same line of argument to argue that DNA molecular programming is not molecular programming because we're just trying to understand an existing system DNA and uh, its chemistry and like the different interactions and geometry and we're trying to hack that and figure it out. Yeah, it's not real molecular programming unless you create a pocket universe and create your laws of physics from scratch. Well, let, let, let me ask Boya then because I because like I guess her background is the most re- is most relevant in, that, in this case. Why is is synthetic chemistry and organic chemistry, um, are they molecular programming? That's very low level, right? You're literally atom by atom constructing things. Um, but then what kind of function, functionality can you achieve by synthetic chem- organic chemistry? Like, can you, can you, um, can you uh, design chemistry, organic chemistry, chemical systems to perform many specific tasks? Are they programmable? So the systems have to be dynamic. I mean, people are working on it, right? So I guess, what do you mean by perform many tasks? Because I guess in a sense, we've proven that any algorithmic task you can do because you can embed algorithms with arbitrarily low error into CRNs, or you can use tile-type systems. And we've built these in the lab. This is the root of our field. But if you're talking universal chemistry where i want to make these atoms move into this place i want to perform this arbitrary reaction on real chemicals if you want to do the kind of nanotechnology in say drexler's engines of creation then i think maybe it's well i don't i don't really know uh maybe maybe you do know what like uh, is this a possibility in synthetic chemistry that if i give you 
an arbitrary reaction between arbitrary mo molecules that can exist, but arbitrary molecules, are we anywhere close to being able to plug into a computer and get a working reaction scheme? Um, I'm not sure about that, but it, I, it, um, and now it suddenly comes up to me that um, a few years ago there's Nobel Nobel Prize about nanomachines, that, but it's not based on DNA. It's um, super molecules, if I remember correctly. Um, that kind of molecular machines are not the molecular machines that our field are working on. It's more pure chemistry. That can we say that is also molecular programming? I think so. Because um, I think it's still bottom up. Um, uh, do you know what type of molecules they were? Is it the is it the uh, Fraser Stoddart Nobel Prize that you're referring to? Twenty was it twenty sixteen twenty sixteen? Yes, yeah. The design and synthesis of molecular machines. Essentially, I remember that one because he's an alumnus of my undergrad university. But you remember pretty much every Nobel Prize winner and what they did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I can't remember exactly. You've got an encyclopedic knowledge of that. Yeah, I mean, that's what happens when you're affiliated with a ton of different universities. So you just happen to be an alumnus of every Nobel Prize. <laughs> Wasn't there a proof that there's some correlation between chocolate consumption and number of Nobel Prizes won? Yeah, Switzerland. Really? Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was for um, it was for these uh, molecular motors. But yeah, I definitely think that we you don't need to be building your nanomachines, your nanocomputers out of DNA. Uh, I mean, our very first uh, tutorial, our very first episode of this podcast was from Brenda Rubenstein, who is working on non-DNA stuff for doing computation and data storage, her, her small molecule stuff. So I would definitely say that that falls into the realm of, of molecular programming. Um, I think that, you know, DNA is very nice because it's just handed to us and it's so easy to program and so easy to just go on the internet and order it and make it do what you want almost. So, you know, I, I think it makes sense why we have a lot of it, but um, it's possible that, you know, maybe we are limiting ourselves um, by not exploring. Like, who knows if we're just doing this because of tradition and maybe there's a far better molecule that, just doesn't happen to be formed of monomers that form in the intergalactic void of space. I mean, th there are two perspectives you could potentially take to this. So one, as you mentioned, is just the practicality of working with DNA. It's like, because it's so common and we understand it very well from a biological perspective and we've developed like scalable enough approaches to synthesizing it, it's just a lot easier to work with it in the lab than anything else like you can think about things like lock nucleic acids that maybe have better properties for like biological applications but currently if we worked with lnas instead of dna in the lab we'd all be broke so not exactly feasible um and so until we develop like maybe even enzymatic approaches for synthesizing these things uh it will get tricky because it just won't be as scalable um and the other thing is that maybe is uh a lot more arguable and no it's definitely a lot more arguable is kind of like it however much trust you put into evolution uh, is that like somehow we've evolved to use dna as our data storage molecule 
um, which you know suggests that its robustness and predictability is good enough to work as a data storage molecule and it's easy enough to interface with chemistry like to develop enzymes that can work with the DNA so maybe there's just some intrinsic properties that we still don't have a very good handle on that make DNA a more favorable substrate for these kinds of things. I mean, obviously, you could also argue that biologically having some sort of mutation rate is also necessary for evolution to happen, and that's maybe not desirable for the applications we're interested in as molecular programmers. But perhaps like that just goes hand in hand and is like a trade-off with the other desirable properties of DNA. And so whilst I agree that there could be a molecule that's a lot better for our purposes, like maybe we'll be hard-pressed to find one. Like specifically. And you mentioned mutation rates. Isn't it the case that, you know, for species where they really don't want the mutation, like uh, extremophile, uh, well, thermophilic extremophiles, they suppress their error mutation rate, whereas their, their error rate, whereas other ones which do want higher mutations, such as, uh, uh, is it, I yeah, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, like trypanosomes and, and other uh parasitic organisms they explicitly increase their mutation rate because it helps them evade the immune system so i think even on that level there's a lot of play in in how you know how bad or how good the copying is for the particular adaptive purpose um and i think another thing that we are maybe we're not mentioning is in our field, we have a lot of um, wet lab stuff, but we also have a lot of theory. And a lot of the theory is not DNA specific. Um, a lot of the theory works at high abstraction levels, like, uh, you know, just to take two examples. So uh, the um, DNA tiles and DNA strand displacement. DNA tiles, the theory behind that is just general tile assembly models so general squares that can stick together on their sides um that comes back from a completely pure mathematical framework of how wang's um tiles back in the 50s 60s and dna strand displacement a lot of the schemes are just based on chemical reaction networks so i feel like even if we even if it turns out that just because dna is cheap maybe it's not the best I think hopefully a lot of our techniques would transfer readily. I mean, okay, there'd be a lot of re-optimization that wouldn't be fun, and there'd be a generation or two of grad students who'd have that fun job of optimization. But I think we could switch fairly easily if we found a better way. Yeah, definitely. Like, the principles we're developing now should most certainly stand with other materials as well. Yeah. Um, and plus, abstraction layers are always good in a computational system because you don't want to be directly programming the sequences for every single reaction. Okay, so we've defined the field. We've talked a bit about UK versus US. What should we talk about next? Wait, how about we ask Will why he started Moltex? Oh, God. So, so just before you do, I can't remember... <laughs> that's an excellent answer I like that answer <laughs> I think um, it had something to do with the fact that um, you know our field as well as and actually this goes back to to the early point of that 
it's hard to find out about our field and, and this is starting to change. But our field only has these two main conferences um, and you can't always attend all of them because, you know, if you're in the US, then D the DNA conferences are once year in the US and the next year they're abroad and vice versa. So it, there aren't too many opportunities for us to meet up. And so I think uh, the main reason I wanted to start Molpix was that was was to give a platform for people to kind of have this community more year round um, because the conferences are so friendly. Like everyone in our field, my impression is that everyone is just really friendly, really welcoming. Um, so it seemed a shame that we don't have more of this community interaction. And I think like, um, you know, hopefully with Molpix and, and also with um, the Molecular Programming Society, which is new and you'll have been hearing about it in these podcasts, um, uh, which is this new society that's starting this textbook called The Art of Molecular Programming. Um, and it's still in its early stages, but it's really fun to see um, already the, the people who have joined the editorial um, boards just, you know, talking to each other and building this this great project um so i think that's one one of the reasons um you know i think th there's a lot of unexplored opportunities of what we can do with our field um so yeah i i think um yeah i'm really uh lucky to have you three uh on on this committee helping me out and i think um Hopefully this podcast is is working well and people are enjoying it. Um, and, you know, we, we had some other ideas and, you know, it's hard with, uh, um, you know, our, our other commitments to do everything. But hopefully in the future we'll look into other things. So I think um, at the beginning I was also thinking it'd be nice to kind of have maybe weekly or fortnightly seminars so that there's a less formal way for people to get their work out there um a bit like what other fields have um like functional programming has this notion of a functional pearl which is just a fun paper that isn't even anything novel it's just um you know someone had a fun idea it, it might be completely explored already but they just present it in an interesting way you know I, I think that that can really add uh to a field to just have that informal ability to get stuff out there and yeah we'll still have to fight with things like uh being afraid of scooping and and priority and stuff like that um and who knows where academia goes in the next decades as the internet and academia collide but i'm hopeful that after some painful growing pains it will uh it will get better um it's now the hard question to you guys, why did you join the Morpix committee? George Ross, coming to you first. Ah, yeah, you've put me on the spot. Um, I'd say I, I joined because, one, uh, I knew about it. And two, I feel like my work is kind of on the very edge of what might be considered molecular programming. In fact, some people will not consider it molecular programming, right? Because we've had the symbio debate. But I'm really interested, like, but I... Just to interject there, like, my work is also, I would say, even further away from molecular programming than yours now. But I aspire to one day be a real bona fide molecular programmer. 
Well, at, at least your work, at, at least your work could be realized in molecules, maybe um, someday. Fingers crossed. <laughs> no, but like I, but like I have a really keen interest in molecular programming. Um, I'm always thinking of like, oh, how can my research maybe be augmented in such a way as to uh, do molecular programming? And actually, in my in my first my first rotation project for my PhD was with Will's supervisor, Goss. And it was a that was a purely molecular programming um, rotation, and I just really found it so interesting. Um, and I just I just want to keep up with the field, and I, I want to grow. I, I just want to keep learning, and eventually, hopefully, kind of slowly move in. Um, yeah, so that's that's why. Hmm. And so, because. Um, because both uh, George and Anastasia, I kind of um, knew you in a in a wider capacity, kind of beforehand. So, so maybe that factors into answers. But boy, I yeah, I think the first time we met was at a poster at DNA twenty five. Um, why did you join the Morpheus Committee? That's a good question. Um, I think um, the the time when I knew Morpheus was. Um, 2020s that year is um, because of COVID and we are all quarantined at home and probably at that stage I was craving for more connection with the with the community community and I was um, and because my research group is kind of small I would want to uh, know more people and have more conversations with people in the field I, and I think uh, having Mopic is a very nice way um, to to know more people like you guys and also it's I feel that there is um, some desire of me that is not met I would want to brainstorm with ideas that can um, help others um, for example having the um, kind of uh, seminar that you were talking about or at the early stage we have some um, brainstorm some other ideas that can help people um, have more conversations and also uh, kind of stuff that I feel that I didn't have enough so I really want to have a way to achieve my own desire and Anastasia yeah, I can echo a lot of what's been said so far. I mean, uh, I do not think that my research is tangential to molecular programming, uh, but I, I absolutely love our com community and just having it be a more year-long thing as opposed to just I isolated conferences just seem awesome for sake of like us knowing each other and working together. And I think it's really unique that we kind of saw that at DNA25 that you know, molecular programming feels like it's the one big family and we're like uh, well enough established that we really know it, it, this is a field, but we're still small enough that um, we're all still friends and we work together and strive towards similar goals and, you know, really fostering that spirit beyond just, you know, a few days a year uh, seemed like a really great thing to do. Um, and yeah, it's, it's been super fun so far and I'm really excited to see what's next for us as well. Yeah, that's, that's a good point about, you know, how, how small we are and how, um, how, how much we are like a family. And yeah, I, I guess one of the big challenges will be whether and, and if it's even practical to keep that kind of feel 
as we hopefully get bigger because that's one of the things that um i think both Morphics and the molecular programming society want to achieve is to widen the knowledge about um our field so um the molecular programming society they ran a reddit ama um which you know a community outreach thing to let because this, this is the kind of almost sci-fi stuff um and, and uh we're kind of on the fringe of that but pushing what reality can do um i don't know maybe that's a bit out there but that's the way i kind of view our field yeah no, we're turning science fiction into science reality which is awesome yeah yeah and so i think i think a lot of people will be interested in this and they just we need to get more people into the field to make our ideas reality faster yeah no on that note also like make the field more accessible right because uh a lot of the stuff we do relies on a deep understanding of like both like maybe the biochemistry if you actually are doing experimental work and then the computer science to actually understand what algorithms we're implementing and all that and it just seems like the the uh, barrier to entry is maybe higher than it should be um and just helping people realize that, well, we're all coming in from different backgrounds and mm. um, we can work together and like fill in those gaps that maybe a certain individual has. Because like collectively, we do have that knowledge base and it's probably impossible for any one person to know everything they need to know in order to really be successful in, in this line of work. And so having a community that enables that just seems really beneficial for people um, from all over the place to really enter the field. Yeah, this is such a field where collaboration is is so important. And I think that probably helps contribute to the community field that you can't really be isolated in this and and make progress, as you say. You need to collaborate. I think uh, maybe it's not a quote, but I've definitely heard something to the effect of that maybe the 1850s or, or sometime around then was the last time that a single scientist or natural philosophers they were probably called then could know pretty much everything there is to know about maths and physics and biology and chemistry and they didn't really have those separate names back then because you could know all of those things and work in pretty much all of those things but then you know with the explosion of all the different subfields of science and all the knowledge within them and all the specializations and continual branching it's just impossible and yet like the programming is such an interdisciplinary field like there's so much cool stuff and there's too much to know and so much to learn and i think that's what makes it really fun um that there's always you know however much you think you know about something there's always something that you're a complete beginner at and that you'll just come across and be like i have never come across this before and you know you get to keep that curiosity alive Molpigs is sponsored by Telebit Nanosystems. Telebit designs and produces DNA nanostructures, as well as standard and customised scaffold DNA strands. They would be happy to set up a call to discuss your project in more detail. If you are interested, please visit their website at tillybit.com or contact them at info at tillybit.com. That's tillybit spelt T-I-L-I-B-I-T. So I have a question for uh, one of you. Uh, I know maybe George also you can take a stab. 
so would you want to be one of those 1850s scientists where you could know anything and everything about what we know about science? Or would you prefer to live today where uh, even within the field you're in, you still feel like you don't really know anything? <laughs> um, oh, my God. I, yeah, I definitely would not want to be one of those um, 1850 scientists or natural philosophers. Uh, mainly because... Maybe, at that, I don't know, like, I remember, I remember the quote, was it Lord Kelvin, who basically said something along the lines of, like, everything in physics has been solved, and there's nothing more to learn. And then the quantum revolution happened. Um, oh, and relativity. Like, I can't imagine wanting to be, like, have, have the feeling of, like, thinking that we're done, and you know everything. Because that's kind of, like, that would, first of all, that would feel really boring and sad and second of all uh you know it's it, it's kind of a false sense of um of 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 kind of understanding it's kind of the opposite of imposter syndrome almost yeah yeah like whatever that is it's 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 like everyone had done in kruger um because they thought they were just like we were, we're done with science um but i think that maybe i do you know how old lord kelvin was when he made that because isn't that the isn't this the thing about old physicists that, you know, if they say something is possible, it probably is. If they say something is impossible... If they say something is impossible, it's definitely possible. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the thing. Although I should clarify that I've just quickly googled um, the exact Lord Kelvin quote, and there's actually some dispute as to whether or not he ever said that. Um, so maybe, maybe Lord Kelvin didn't declare that... Um, uh, like all that was left of physics is just to have more precise measurements. Lord Kelvin's reputation is saved. Thank you for the fact check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, to, to, answer, uh, to answer the question, yeah, I think it's way better to have imposter syndrome than to feel like you know everything. I think there's no argument to be had there. Hmm. Do you, any of you have, have have an experience of imposter syndrome? Oh yeah. All the time. Yeah, I I think basically we've... I, I don't think... Can anyone really say that they have not felt imposter syndrome? Not just us as the committee, but I feel like a lot of science is the kind of, as it's now called, Instagram reality of, you know, oh, you're a successful scientist, you know everything, um, you feel confident, um, all your research goes well. I, I feel like it must be the case that everyone has felt imposter syndrome. At some point, I think some scientists definitely don't feel it. Like, you can look at them and mm. you know because of what they say. Yeah, I feel like interdisciplinary research is especially prone to imposter syndrome because there's just so much more that you can know as opposed to other fields which are a lot smaller and maybe more defined. And I think it makes it more acceptable to not know stuff if you are, are in an interdisciplinary field although it doesn't always feel that way maybe I, I think definitely from within you always feel or at least I always feel kind of like I should know if if I come across a subject I always feel a bit ashamed um, if, if I don't know enough about it or that oh I should have done extra reading during my undergrad and or remembered more um, but I think you know, there is so much to learn 
um, you cannot know everything. And I, I think it's just a relic of the past um, to have this expectation of people. Yeah, no, and also if you think about it for like early career researchers, uh, like we look up and we see people who are much more experienced than us that clearly know a ton more than us. But then if you think about it, they literally have decades more experience. Like just how much content can you learn in a few decades? That's quite a lot. And how much content can you forget in a few decades? That is true. Uh, and that might actually be more than the content you can learn, but uh, we'll, 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 <laughs> yeah. we'll see. <laughs> but I feel like the higher up you go, the bigger the expectation that you are this person. And so you have to maintain that front. That is until you win a Nobel Prize and then can start saying that telekinesis and water memory are real and water divination. Um, you know, when you get a Nobel Prize, then you're right for everything and you can think and say whatever you want. Um, but before then, you just cannot know everything. Um, there's always going to be something left to learn. Yeah, it's kind of exciting also why in molecular programming now we're seeing the whole field come together and like sum up that collective knowledge in a single textbook and um, like i don't think any one person could possibly write comprehensive as comprehensive a resource on molecular programming as uh aomp is trying to be yeah yeah so um just as a reminder which it seems like we're doing every episode but it's just such an exciting project that i think it deserves the airtime um the Art of Molecular Programming, this textbook. Uh, we've currently, I, I think, I mean, there's dozens and dozens of people involved in this project and there's going to be dozens and dozens more. We're starting to get into the exciting phase where very soon we're going to start recruiting our first authors, trying out, developing the sections. Um, we've developed a draft table of contents, so I've got an idea of the structure. Um, and uh, actually, if you follow the links from this podcast you can subscribe to our newsletter and and our twitter feed and find out more about it as it develops um but yeah we've got this entire community grassroots project everyone's getting stuck in and if you didn't know about it and you do want to get stuck in it's not too late uh yeah contact us and let us know and yeah i think this really helps combat this kind of um difficulty in knowing everything because we're just asking one person to talk about one thing that they feel passionate passionately about. And then by combining all of that, I think this will be a really interesting experiment to see kind of what what comes out the other end. Um, I, I think it will uh, be a great amassment of knowledge. I think it'll certainly be a textbook that I will want to read cover to cover for the first time ever. Like that is a, it's, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if, having looked at the table of contents, I don't think there's a single uninteresting topic in the whole textbook. There's something for everyone. It's just brilliant. I can't wait. I, I second that. Good advertisement. Oh, yeah. So yeah, 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 for sure. Right? <laughs> it's not like we're involved in it. <laughs> <laughs> no conflict of interest at all here. Absolutely none. So now we, we've talked about the textbook that will be summing up a lot of things in the field. Is there any one thing that any of you guys really, really wish you knew how to do, but absolutely cannot do at this point in time? It also doesn't have to be scientific. Um, I wish I knew more about psychology. I think I have recently put a lot of efforts in 
understanding myself and trying to understand others. And um, I think if I knew more about psychology, that will help me interact with others and um, communicate with others better. And that's a very important skill, which I didn't appreciate that much when I was younger. I think that's a really interesting perspective. Uh, like, yeah, I, I think I completely agree with that. I, I don't think it would have occurred to me. And yeah, I, I think it both helps interpersonal relationships, but also learning about yourself. Um, I think the last, I, I think I struggled throughout most of my PhD. And I think the last year, I, I don't know about psychology of other people, but I think I learned a lot more about the psychology of myself and how to get over the difficulties. Yeah, I, I'm still learning, of course. Everyone's still learning how to live their best life, how to make their life work the way they want to. Um, I don't think anyone feels like they're in complete control. Um, but I think just learning about yourself not only helps you learn about others, but, you know helps you get over procrastination, um, anxiety, uh, depression, all sorts of things. What about you, Jojo? Oh, what do I wish I could do that I currently can't do? The list is so very long. Um, one thing that immediately comes to mind is I wish I could um, simulate DNA strand displacement reactions in my head like my co-supervisor Gus can. Like, I remember on several occasions, we would design several experiments and several reaction schemes. And I'd be like furiously writing things out on the whiteboard and trying to decide if it works or not. And then Goss would just say in like two or three seconds after thinking about it, oh, that'll work, that won't work. Oh, you see that one? That's going to do this. And I would be like, yeah, yeah, right. As if, how can you possibly know that? And then like come to like, then we'd go into the lab and try it and he'd be exactly right every single time like he would even like he, he was even able to predict kind of the shape of what a numerical ODE simulation of the uh, reaction network would look like like a, like a complex one like a really complex one somehow that's what I wish I could do just just know what's gonna like <laughs> see I think like, that's the kind of intuitive experience that you gain as you get higher up in in the field and then you just seem like a magician to those around you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you know, Goss is the last person who would want someone to feel imposter syndrome, but, like, I can imagine that just in that scenario, just like, how will I ever get to that point? <laughs> it, well, yeah, he does seem like a magician. <laughs> yeah. That's how the admiration from PhD student to advisors come from. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I kind of wish... I was better at at drawing. I don't think I ever kind of paid much attention to it before. I started um, doing kind of flat style drawing for for figures, and I kind of I um, kind of like the hand drawn style. But I am terrible at you know anything three D or people or or anything lifelike. I, I think that's something I'd like to to get better at. Um, Oh yeah, and on a more molecular programming level, I don't have any wet lab experience really, and I I I want to rectify that as soon as possible. 
I, to I, I totally see your point about um, trying to get better at um, trying to get better at better at art because I, I, I think like it, it's really amazing when you see a, a scientist who's like I, I, I can only think of a couple of examples um, and I forget the name of one of them but like um, I think it's really amazing when you you think of Roger Penrose no I'm thinking of oh. David Goodsell who hmm. is who draws really beautiful protein structures um like and it re and like it relates to his research and like and i can also remember the um the example of it was either this it was either a scientist or that scientist's partner who like the, the modern representation of of proteins as alpha helices and beta sheets you know the kind of the, the these flat kind of sheets that was kind of in that was i, I think if i remember correctly, that was created by kind of just someone's an artist's impression of what a protein would look like and it's become a standard, like scientific representation of proteins. But what what, what about Roger, Roger Penrose? Yeah, yeah. Um, I so yeah, I've gone to a couple of of Roger Penrose's talks, and every time I just you even got to meet him in person, right? I I have met him in person. Yeah, I was very lucky to. Um, yeah, back in undergrad, I somehow um, the the president of this student group I was in just bumped into Roger Penrose at an event, invited him to give a talk, and he said yes. And then a few months later, we ended up having dinner with him beforehand, uh, getting him to give a talk. Um, the fire marshal was not very happy because we said there'd be 200 people and then 500 turned up and he asked us to get them to leave. And yeah, could have broken a few regulations there. Um, but anyway, yeah, that was a great experience and the thing i love about the talks roger penrose gives is he he doesn't use computers he uses transparencies on on an overhead projector um so not only does he draw really complicated uh you know across all the different fields he's interested in general relativity computing uh other stuff um not only does he draw these you know really accurately and really in a way that helps you to understand it. But what I like is he kind of moves the transparencies over them to simulate animations. So without a computer or anything, he kind of gives this effect. Um, and I, I think um, it, it's underrated how being effective at art is really helpful for communicating science, you know, just putting equations on a slide it, you know, it, I I don't. It, it's it just goes over. It goes over my head uh, if I'm in a talk. Like you know, if you sit down and work them through, yeah. But I I think when you're trying to just express an idea to someone the first time, being as clear as possible and using great diagrams and and great figures, I think can really help spread kind of the cool stuff that you're working on um, a lot more easily. Anastasia, have you had any experience where, like, because you're something of an artist, if I'm not mistaken. Not really. Um, but you have a keen interest. Oh, come on, you're doing yeah. loads of cool animations in all sorts of mediums. Yeah, have you, have you ever had, a, like, a, 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 like, has there ever been a, point, been a point where, like, representing your research has helped you understand it better in an artistic sense? Yeah, I mean, so the very first animation I made was uh, using pipe cleaners to animate the self-assembly of like the crisscross ribbons we're working on 
And it was kind of fascinating that a lot of the principles we've been describing from a theoretical perspective actually seem to really apply even when making those ribbons out of pipe cleaners instead of DNA strands. So even for example, uh, we have this notion of how many bonds we need for something to be stably attached. And indeed, when as for and like you know, in terms of like nucleation and spontaneous nucleation, like how difficult that is for, for it to happen. And uh, even when assembling these structures out of DNA or of pipe cleaners, um, for like when it, when I was just starting, like making them like before like the critical nucleus is formed, it was really hard to get it to like stay together. It was just all falling apart. But then as the ribbon got bigger and bigger, like things like there were more bonds, like sort of like weavings between the pipe cleaners, and it was just a lot more stable. And then at that point, it wouldn't fall apart. And so it's like wow. And there are some other subtle principles as well that. It just like, well, you even see that if you're working on this completely different size scale, that the, a lot of the core principles we're working on are just so relevant across scales. And that kind of goes back to our earlier discussion of like, well, synthetic biology versus molecular programming, like how low level do you have to be? And I feel like a lot of the principles just work. Are pipe cleaners maybe an alternative to DNA for the future? Exactly, of yeah. Compute? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Okay, I think we're about out of time, but I really enjoyed this. I hope you all listening really enjoyed it too. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll do one of these again in the future. But for now, stay tuned for more regular programming when we will have William Poole as our guest. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you soon. Oh yeah, we forgot to mention AMP for a third time. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>